the enemies are defeated. Jerusalem is established. The Ark of the Covenant is back where it belongs. And through it all, David has proven himself to be a humble, righteous, gracious, and just king. So far, you could say that he's been the truly perfect king, believe it or not. But the true peak of David's reign came in the promise of 2 Samuel 7. David wants to build God a house, but God does the exact opposite. God promises David that someone from his house will always sit on the throne in Israel. But the real beauty of the 2 Samuel 7 promise isn't exactly what David had in mind. Because in a sense, that promise, at least as David might have understood it, would eventually fail. In just a few generations, the kingdom of Israel would be torn in two. A couple more generations after that, the physical throne that David sat on would be completely destroyed. But the good news for David, and the good news for us, is that the Second Samuel 7 promise is ultimately fulfilled in a better way than David could have imagined. Because that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. And his reign is very different from David's. His crown is very different from David's. And instead of a throne, Jesus gets a cross. But make no mistake, King Jesus, who came much later than David, is far greater than David. But last week we ended with King David and the rest of God's people on top of the world. In fact, life has never been better in Israel. But as we see all too often, the higher you are, the harder you can fall. And today, King David takes quite the tumble from glory. But of course, the real question is this. What does David learn from his fall? And just as importantly, what can we learn from the fall of King David? So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we read... Let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you that on Father's Day, because of what your son has done for us, we can call you our father. We can approach your throne with confidence. We can say with great joy that we are your children. And so, Father, regardless of what positive or negative experiences we may have with fathers and, and parenting. Thank you that you are our father and that you are good and that you can be trusted and that you do not let us down. Thank you for this time we have together in your word. I pray that you would give us ears to hear it, hearts to receive it, and that you would be with us as we leave here later in the service to put your word into practice in our words and in our deeds in all the places that you send us. We love you. We thank you for Christ, our perfect king. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Let's begin by reading 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So at the prime time of the year to fight, King David, the famous warrior, stays home. 
After all he's accomplished, maybe David's just tired. Or maybe he's gotten a little bit lethargic. Perhaps after all the battles that he's won, fighting just doesn't give him the same thrill that it once did. So David sends Joab, his often reckless but fiercely loyal military commander, to fight on his behalf. So we're left with David, powerful, wealthy, beloved, and maybe most importantly and most dangerously, bored. What could possibly go wrong, right? Well, 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So it all starts with David taking a perfectly innocent stroll on the roof, at least until he sees the beautiful Bathsheba bathing. She, of course, is the wife of Uriah, one of David's most trusted soldiers. But David wants what he wants, and he's the king, so he takes Bathsheba. In the words of theologians Three Dog Night, what we have is just an old-fashioned love song coming down in three-part harmony. But really, all joking aside, there's no harm done, right? I mean, it is just a fling, and we all make mistakes. But then just when life begins to get back to normal... Bathsheba informs David that she's pregnant. Now, there are aspects of this story that have long been debated, especially concerning Bathsheba. Many have asked, you know, is Bathsheba an innocent victim forced against her will to sleep with the king? Or is she a power-hungry temptress using her body to try and move up in the world? Well, one thing is very clear from our story. And it's that Bathsheba is not the villain. Bathing on the roof was not in common in that day. So there's no evidence to suggest that Bathsheba was intentionally trying to be seen by King David. On top of that, she appears to take God's law seriously, at least seriously enough to purify herself according to what the law says. No matter how you slice it, the villain of our story is not Bathsheba. The villain of our story is the wonderful, seemingly perfect King David. Those who attempt to paint Bathsheba as the real bad guy, they're probably just trying to sanitize David. They probably just have a hard time wrapping their minds around the thought that our wonderful, good old King David could possibly commit such terrible sin. So we have to shift the blame to Bathsheba. But let's say hypothetically that even if Bathsheba was intentionally tempting David, the truth still remains that it's his responsibility to flee from sin. It's his responsibility to practice righteousness and self-control. In other words, it's his responsibility to be a good king, like we've talked about the past few weeks. But then on top of that, 
If you're somehow trying to absolve David from guilt, then the story is just beginning. And you still have what comes next, where we see that David is very much the villain. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. You know, small talk. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David tries to cover his tracks. He starts by making Uriah think the soon-to-arrive baby is actually his. David encourages him to take a nice little second honeymoon with Bathsheba. But twice, David's plan fails. And it's all because Uriah refuses to ignore his duties. It's sadly ironic that the non-Israelite soldier, Uriah, conducts himself with more righteousness than God's anointed king, David. Now, as for the cover-up, David now has to resort to more drastic means. He gets Uriah killed in battle. He takes the poor widow Bathsheba to be his wife. And this all looks pretty good for him. The people are probably impressed with how good a guy David is, taking in this poor, poor widow. How caring of him. In the process of getting Uriah killed, David commands poor military strategy, puts other soldiers in danger, and compromises his entire campaign, all for the sake of hiding his own wickedness. And to top it all off, Uriah is forced to deliver his own death letter to Joab. And Joab is complicit in David's sin. Now, don't you hate when the bad guy gets away? It's all the more frustrating when the bad guy used to be the good guy and only gets away because he has power. 
Well, as of right now, it appears that David got away. This can all stay between David, Bathsheba, David's servants, who would surely never have the guts to say anything, and Joab. Nobody has to know. But the truth is that the story is far from over. And while Israel might not know about what David has done, God does. Chapter 11, verse 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David could hide it from lots of people, but he couldn't hide it from God. And we see that all the more clearly in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, but he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. So Nathan, the same prophet who delivered the joyous news of 2 Samuel 7, now confronts David with his sin. How does Nathan know about it? Was there some kind of leak in David's administration? No, he's a prophet. But Nathan wisely uses a story to expose David's hypocrisy, to expose his evil. Nathan even goes so far as to announce God's judgment upon David for this act. But then I would argue that what happens next is the most crucial moment in David's reign. How will he respond to Nathan? Will he confess his sin and genuinely repent? Or will he act like Saul when he was confronted by Samuel? Maybe show some shallow external repentance, but only be followed by deepening rebellion and even more hardened 
disobedience. What will David do? Because this is not just the defining moment of King David's reign. This is the defining moment of his entire life. Will he double down in his sin? Or will he cast himself onto the mercy of God? We see in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. So David repents. God accepts his repentance. But that doesn't mean the consequences of David's sin vanish into thin air. Nathan's words concerning God's judgment prove to be true. In a heartbreaking passage, the child in Bathsheba's womb dies. And David's family eventually crumbles. It's a tragic ending to a tragic story. But again, an important question is this. What did David learn And what do we learn? Well, there's plenty here to learn. Lesson number one, no one is above falling into sin. No one. If you think you are, look at Samuel, second Samuel one through ten. The passage we read last week where David was the perfect king. And if it can happen to him, it's safe to say it can happen to you. There's a famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul spends a lot of Corinthians talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he's writing this particular passage to people who arrogantly think that they can waltz into a pagan temple, be there for a pagan worship ceremony, eat some of the meat that is sacrificed to these false gods, and they're all good because these gods aren't real and they won't be tempted to worship them. But then Paul gives all kinds of examples where people thought they would never be tempted to sin. But then they do. And great destruction comes as a result. So he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands Take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, if you arrogantly think you're above sin, and then you fall into sin, don't blame God, because it's not God's fault. We can go back to Proverbs. We've spent the last few weeks spending time in Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You can make the argument that in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David is guilty of every single one of those sins. 
Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. No one is above falling into sin. And if we think we are, we're flirting with disaster. We're like that person carrying around fire and thinking that we won't get burned. It can happen to any of us. But another lesson we learn is about the snowball effect of hidden sin. Instead of confessing, repenting, righting his wrong, David covers it up. And as a result of this, he compounds the sin even further. He was already guilty of coveting, stealing, and adultery. But the cover-up leads him to bear false witness and even leads him to murder. You may think that hiding your sin is somehow limiting or controlling the damage. You may even convince yourself that you're going to manage to get away with it. But when it comes to light, maybe in this life, but definitely before God, your cover-up will only cause more destruction. There is a snowball effect to hidden sin. The third lesson is that God invites repentance. That's why he sent Nathan in the first place. As an invitation for David to abandon his sin and cast himself onto God's mercy. And we see detailed accounts of David's repentance in Psalms 32 and 51. In Psalm 32, David reflects on what it was like before he repented. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. As by the heat of summer. If you have hidden sin, it will suck the life out of you, is what David's saying. And then in Psalm 51, we see the actual repentance of David. In verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. God invites us to repent, not because he takes pleasure in seeing his people grovel, but because he knows that repentance is for our good. God wants his people to be restored to the joy of salvation. That's why he calls us to repent. Now let's not kid around about it. Repentance is never fun. But it's like a painful surgery that hurts at the time, but ultimately brings healing in the long run. As we mentioned, David was at a crossroads when Nathan confronted him with his sin. His response would define the rest of his life. Well, perhaps you're at a crossroads as well. Perhaps you recognize that you need to finally get that sin out in the open. Before the light of God's holiness, the light of God's grace expressed through the cross of Christ. I pray you do it this morning. Because sin only snowballs 
And sin only thrives when we hide it in darkness. Now, a couple more lessons that are maybe a little less obvious. The example of Nathan. What do we learn from Nathan? Well, Nathan puts his life on the line to obey God and address David's sin. He had no idea how David could have responded. Maybe he'd repent and thank Nathan for being honest with him. Or maybe he'd have Nathan killed, just like he did Uriah. The point is that it took great love and courage and faithfulness for Nathan to be honest with David about his sin. And it takes great courage and love and faithfulness for us to be honest with others about their sin. But it takes even greater courage and great humility for us to be honest with ourselves about our sin. And recognize when we have no choice but to get our sin out in the open. And then one final lesson is that even with repentance, there are still consequences to our sin. We often hear the mantra to forgive and forget. When someone wrongs you, talk it out and pretend like it never happened. Well, sometimes that's true. We all make mistakes, and you can't hold some past sins against someone forever. However, it's not always so simple as forgive and forget. Every now and then you see stories of a murder victim's family forgiving the murderer in court. And those stories move us, and they inspire us, and rightfully so. But I also imagine that none of those families would be foolish enough to let that murderer back on the street. They would want to make sure that no other family has to go through the pain and the hardship that they have. You could sum it up by saying that in some circumstances, it would be unwise, unjust, and irresponsible to simply forgive and forget and pretend like something never, ever happened. But the good news of the gospel is that while we will still bear the burden of our worldly consequences for our sin. Christ takes the eternal consequences of our sin upon himself. That repentant murderer may still spend their life in prison, but because of Christ, they don't have to spend eternity in hell. Now, of course, there's no shortage of lessons to be learned from the fall of King David. But there's one more question that we haven't asked yet. What about that promise in 2 Samuel 7? Has David's wickedness somehow made that promise null and void? Or maybe was it null and void, but then when David repented, God changed his mind and decided to fulfill the promise after all? No. God will keep that promise from 2 Samuel 7. Not because David is good, but because God is good. We'll talk about that more next week as we wrap up the series looking at the legacy of of King David. David's reign will go out with a whimper. It will seem like pretty much everything falls apart from this point forward. And then the question becomes, can David's legacy possibly be redeemed? Well, the answer is yes, it can. But that also comes back to Christ, the eternal king we read about in 2 Samuel 7. The greater, later king who doesn't just redeem and restore a sinner like David, but can redeem and restore 
sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look in your word and we can find people who often are held up on pedestals, often are treated as superheroes of the faith. We have all kinds of kids' lessons and vacation Bible schools where we talk about these people like they're these wonderful saints who always obeyed you and never displeased you, but that's simply not true. All the heroes that we talk about from the Old Testament prove to not really be heroes after all, if you really read their stories. But when we look at their sin and when we look at our sin, it only magnifies your holiness. It only leaves us more in awe of your grace, that you could save people like them, you could use people like them, and that you can save and use people like us. So, Father, thank you that you are a good and forgiving God, that you invite us to repent, that sin does not have to have the final word in our lives here on this earth and in our lives in eternity. I pray that every single one of us would turn to you in an attitude of repentance, that we would never think that we're past the point of repentance, never think that we're too good to fall into sin because we're not. I pray that every single day, no matter how old we get, no matter how much we grow, no matter how many church services we attend, no matter how much of the Bible we read, that we become more and more reminded of just how gracious you are and just how much we will always need your grace. We love you. We thank you for pouring out your mercy and pouring out your grace on us through the broken body and shed blood of Christ. He's the reason we gather here today. We give you all the glory, and we thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.